Now, not all of you have been with us in the previous messages on the book of Revelation. And even for those of you who have, it probably feels like quite a long time ago since we were last here. Let's briefly recap. In the opening chapter of this book, it is the revelation of Christ given for his church through the Apostle John. And in the opening chapter, Christ gives John a vision of Christ, glorious vision of Christ. And he's pictured in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, in the midst of his churches. In chapters 2 and 3, Christ sends through the Apostle seven letters to the churches. Letters of acknowledgement and commendation. Letters of exhortation and encouragement. Letters of rebuke and a call to repentance. Letters that conclude with a glorious promise of an eternal inheritance for all the saints who persevere to the end. In chapter 4 we have this glorious image of the throne room of God in all its majesty and holiness and purity where the saints and angels worship the eternal God, all those saints who've gone before. And if you're a believer, one day you'll be there with them. In chapter 5, we're introduced to a sealed book or a scroll. On it is written all the decree and purposes and will of God, everything that is ever going to happen within his creation. Everything that will ever happen in earth's history in the hand of God because he has decreed it so. Who is worthy to take that scroll and to execute all of God's will and purposes in his creation? Just one. A lamb as though it had been slain. The risen Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapters 6 and 7, Christ opens the seven seals on that scroll. All of earth's history is instituted from heaven. Everything, everything, every person, every event, every organisation, every plan of men, every scheme of men, everything under the control and authority of God through Christ coming from heaven to earth. One of the main words that you notice there is these things are given to happen from heaven. All the ills and sorrows and griefs and trials and difficulties that all men and women experience are from God. And Christians know all of those things And on top of that, simply because they are Christian believers, they will know other things which oppose and oppress and persecute, all for the cause and the sake of Christ, just as he was opposed and oppressed and persecuted. But all believers, even if they lose their earthly life as a witness for Christ, they're all sealed They're all secure in him for all eternity. And they're seen at last before that throne of God in victory with all the saints 
who've gone before them. And there they are in everlasting praise and worship of God. In chapters 8 to 11, we look at those same things, but from another perspective. We're looking at that period of Earth's history from when Christ first came into this world to the time when he will return again. And we're looking at that period of history from different perspectives. In chapters 8 to 11, another perspective as seven trumpets are blown by angels. And they teach us that all of the awful things that happen in this world, certain things about them can be said. They come as a judgment from God against those who persecute his church. They come as a wake-up call to those who are still lost in their sins, to turn from sin and to Repent and to trust in Christ because life is short and eternity is long. And all of those things come as a reminder that the great and final judgment of God is not an idle threat. Even now in this world, God brings judgment. And that great and final judgment is very real. And it's coming sooner than you think. And in the midst of all this, in chapters 10 to 11, the church suffers, but it stands firm. It continues to preach the gospel and is a faithful witness. It will seem at times as if the church is all but wiped from the face of the earth. But those whom the world has killed for Christ's sake are seen again alive forever. And they're at rest in the presence of their God and Saviour. Chapters 12 to 24 look at this same period of Earth's history, this gospel age in which we live, and they look at it from another perspective. And they allow us to see things from a different angle again. Now, once more, as we've seen through this whole book, we have language which is symbolic and is not to be taken literally. These pictures explaining spiritual truths and realities. Well, we, we have our eyes taken off the things that are happening here on earth in these chapters. We have our eyes taken off the things which are going to be our experience because that's what we've been looking at up to now what, what's it going to be like to be a Christian through all of these things and instead now we see a bigger, deeper reality we see the real spiritual battle that's taking place which lies behind all of these things now we're just doing a brief overview uh, overview of these three chapters, the reason for that is I would just want you to see the big picture there are many little details and many little nuances that we're not going to go into if you've seen any of those huge paintings down in the walker art gallery you'll know that really there are two ways to to look at them you can either get up really close and look at the fine detail and when you do that you can only see this part of the picture you can't see the rest or you take several steps back and you take in the whole thing well that's what we're doing this evening with these three chapters we're just going to take some steps back 
and just try and see the big picture. If you want to find out perhaps what some of these little details are that I don't talk about, what some of these nuances are that I don't talk about, well, you get hold of a book such as that one, More Than Conquerors by William Hendrickson. I've mentioned it a few times. That's a really good place to start. It's very readable. And, uh, well, do some reading and digging yourselves and enjoy some of the things that you can learn and consider there. So just an overview. Well, let's get to chapter 12. And we read that just before. And in this chapter, there are three main features. There's a woman, there's a child, and there's a dragon. I don't know what Adela's reaction might have been when she heard of the red dragon, if she'd been here. But she might have got all patriotic on us, but that, of course, is not what it's talking about whatsoever. What is it? What is this red dragon? Who is the child? What is this woman? The woman symbolises the people of God. God only has one people, one holy nation, one royal priesthood, one church. The true believers of both the Old and the New Testaments are part of that one body of Christ. He only has one people. And they are pictured as this woman. From that people would come a child who is Christ. Unto us a son is born, unto us a son is given, we read during the Christmas season. That child will be born of the woman in the sense that he was going to be of the tribe of Judah. He would be of the house and lineage of David. That's why Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem. And he would be there. And there are strong echoes here of Genesis chapter 3 where it talks about the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head. Strong echoes of that here. The woman and her seed. And so the woman is the church. It's God's people. And the child is Christ. The dragon, as the text tells us in verse 9, that serpent of old. Again, a throwback to Genesis. The serpent who came and tempted Adam and Eve, the devil and Satan. So we're not left to guess as to who the serpent or the dragon is. It's, it's Satan. It's the evil one. A dragon, of course, is not that dissimilar to a serpent, really, is it? And from the outset, he is going to oppose the woman and the child. Now, as you read the Old Testament, you see what a precarious state the nation of Israel was often in. And Satan was doing a lot, even then, opposing the woman, opposing the birth of that child. Satan is active against God's people. And all through the Old Testament, you see that. Now, of course, sometimes Israel only had themselves to blame. But Satan is active, opposing them. Numerous times, the story seems doomed as you read through from Genesis. Surely this promised Messiah, he's never going to make it. Because the nation of Israel just aren't going to get through this. There's going to be no tribe of Judah left for him to come from at this rate. David will have no descendants from which this child will come so that his throne is established forever and ever. It's not going to happen. But despite Satan's best efforts, God always preserves a remnant. He always has his Old Testament people. 
and the angels announce his coming and Christ is born of Mary. But the woman isn't Mary. The woman is all of God's people, the church. From the moment of his birth, Satan stands ready to try and destroy him. The story had a precarious start. You've got Abraham and his wife. No children and too old to have children. And yet the child was born and the story began. And even as Christ is born, King Herod sets out to have him killed and murdered. And but for the intervention of God to the wise men who went home a different way and avoided Herod, that could have happened. But of course, God is intervening and is sovereign over all of these things. All of Satan's plots are thwarted and God's purposes are victorious. And Christ will accomplish the purpose for which he came. Now we keep being reminded of this as we make our way through Revelation. And the book of Revelation is given so that we don't worry unduly, that we're not afraid unduly of the things that are happening in the world around us. Because the book tells us how it's all going to end. Don't, don't worry, don't be afraid. Remember how it's all going to end. Sometimes on television you'll see people being asked in an interview about a book or a film. And they ask them, well, well what's it all about? And they're trying to explain what it's all about without giving too much away. Spoiler alert is the phrase they use, isn't it? Don't give too much away. Well, this isn't a work of fiction. And I'm very thankful that God keeps assuring us all the way through, don't you worry, because remember how it ends. Don't you worry, because remember how it all ends. But we see that Satan is active against Christ and against his church. That is why Christians have the opposition and the persecution that they have. Satan is active against us because he's active against Christ. In verses 7 to 9, we're told of Satan's origin. War broke out in heaven. One of the great angels in heaven and he decided to rebel against God. Foolish idea. Did he win? Of course not. And he's cast out of heaven. And that's Satan's origin. An angel rebelling against God. But verses 10 and 11 remind us that he's already a defeated foe because the blood of the Lamb brings salvation. And therefore, in verse 12, even though Satan for a while is still at large, even Satan knows his time is short. Why is Satan's time short? Because it's all under God's plan and purposes. We have this time scale of three and a half years that keeps occurring. Sometimes it's days, sometimes it's years, sometimes it's months. Three and a half years goes back into the Old Testament. But you see, it's a, God knows it's a limited time. God knows the beginning. God knows the end. Even all of that is under God's will and purposes. We don't know when the end will be, but it's all under God. And even Satan knows his time is short. It's a great encouragement to me. 
the world is not the chaotic place that actually we think it is. God is over all things. Verses 13 to 17, Satan continues to wage war against the woman. He continues to wage war against the church. But the woman will never and can never be destroyed. There is refuge provided for her. There is safety and security provided for her. And that's a great promise in the scriptures for us. That even in the midst of great oppression and affliction and persecution, there is refuge and safety for those who belong to Christ. Satan, who does he make the object of his attacks? The end of verse 17. Those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's the faithful ones who Satan attacks. The faithful ones. It's genuine believers who are Satan's concern. But they're safe in Christ Satan indeed, as the scripture tells us, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But the promise of the scripture is if you draw near to God, God will draw near to you. And if you flee from Satan, he will flee from you. There is victory in Christ. There is security in Christ. And Satan will do his best and do his worst in the short time that he's got to throw all his armory at you. All his armory at us. But we're secure in Christ and we have the ultimate victory. It's a wonderful reassurance from this book. Now as we get into chapter 13, we're introduced to two beasts. We won't read the whole chapter, but let me give you a flavour of these beasts. Chapter 13. I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It's got seven heads, ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. And the imagery of, is of this great beast that can do great damage, uh, like a leopard, feet like the feet of a bear, mouth like the mouth of a lion, a beast that devours and claws and kills and maims. The dragon, Satan, gave him his power, his throne and great authority. And what does the world do with this dragon? Verse 4, they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast and they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who's able to make war with him? Verse 7, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And every authority was given him over every tribe, tongue and nation. God is permitting Satan to do his work in this world for a time. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, the imagery of this beast is not to be taken literally. Some people look at these images and they try to make each of these things mean something. They look around at the state of the world right now and they try and say, well, heads, what can the heads be? Maybe the heads, maybe those things are the heads. Uh, horns. Now, what can all of these horns be? Tie themselves up in knots, trying to decipher events in the world which precisely fit the images of these beasts. Well, that's not the way to look at it. This is a picture 
of all in authority who rise up against God and his people. The opposition that will come against Christians and the opposition that will come against the church comes in many, many forms and it comes in many different ways. That's the imagery of this beast with its multiple heads and horns and the, the damage that it can do. And all the people of the world who are not in Christ will all fall in line behind. They'll all join in. They'll all line themselves up behind those who oppose Christianity, all those who oppose Christ and the Lord's people. Think of the direction our nation has gone in in recent years, led by the so-called politically correct, led by minority groups who just seem to shout the loudest and make the most protest. Think of all the legislation that's been passed in recent years, which militates against Christians in so many different areas of life. Think about the, the, in those parts of the world where people in the names of other religions violently, violently persecute the Lord's people, even putting them to death. The beast has many heads and horns. It has many ways of acting. It has all kinds of plans and schemes, but it is just one beast acting against the Lord's people and against Christ. And God in his kindness is preparing us, making us ready. We should expect all of these things because Satan is at war against us. And then there's a second beast uh, from verse 11. It's no, less, no less of a beast, but it's a slightly different type of image. This one's got two horns like a lamb. But it speaks like a dragon. Sheep in wolves' clothing springs to mind. Uh, and this one, verse 12, exercises all the authority of the first beast, causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed, performs great signs, deceives those who dwell on the earth was granted power, verse 15, to breathe, to give breath to the image of the beast. What, what's all this talking about? Verse 16, causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the, the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Well, Hollywood's gone to town on 666. What's it all talking about? A beast which looks like a lamb, but is a dragon, Satan. This is all the false religion, false philosophy, which rises up against the things of Christ. Humanism, new age thinking, evolution, and all the other things. Those so-called experts who appear on TV panels spouting forth their empty rhetoric. The world is this. You should live like that. This is what's important. That's what's not important. These are they who pour scorn upon those who hold former virtues of, real, of morality and chastity and who get all the world to laugh along with them. But Christians who stand up and say, I believe the Bible. 
and all the world starts to laugh with them. That's what it's talking about here. The whole world joining in against God's people. Often people don't really know why they're doing it, but they do it and they join in. That's what it's talking about. I've got my page stuck. There we go. These are often the self-appointed philosophers of the world who fuel the fire against Christ. They fuel the fire against his church. They fuel the fire against the Bible. Take a program like Question Time on a Thursday evening. Get a panellist or someone in the audience to speak out in favour of Christ, to speak out in favour of the Bible, to speak out in favour of traditional Christian morality and the rest of the audience will just boo and jeer and laugh. That's the second beast, you see. Everyone's just jumping on the bandwagon and militating against the Lord's people. That's what the mark of the beast means. It's nothing mysterious. You're not going to get 666 on your head one morning when you look in the mirror. It's symbolic language. Symbolic. Think of the great intolerance that there is generally in society today against Christians and against Christianity. Think about gospel preachers in our own nation who've been arrested for simply preaching the gospel on the street. Think of those who find themselves in the workplace having things said to them like this, you will agree to our policy on discrimination and on equality on transgender issues and you will sign your agreement on this piece of paper. You will do it. That's the second beast. You will think like this. You will hate everything that Christians stand for. You will hate everything that God is. You will militate against it. And the whole world joins in. Everybody's joining in. Think of those who've lost their jobs for stating their disagreement against something like same-sex marriage. For example, and look at the end of verse 15. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. This, this is how the world thinks. This is how the world operates. This is what the world says is right and wrong. You toe the line or else. It's happening. It's happening. Shouldn't be surprised. It's been in the scripture for 2,000 years. Look at verse 17. No one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast. Think of the Ashes Bakery case. You're not thinking like you're supposed to think. You're not behaving like you're supposed to behave. So we're going to take you to court. That's what's being spoken about here. The whole world militating against Christians. And it's this worldliness, it's this worldly militating against, 
It's this worldly opposition which is the mark of the beast. It's this godlessness and this worldliness that is the mark of the beast. You see, every man or woman is in one camp or the other. Either you are of Christ or you are of the world. And the mark of the beast is simply being of the world and not being of Christ. You are a child of God and an enemy of Satan, or you are a child of wrath and you are Satan's ally. It's one or the other. And the mark of the beast is simply talking about those who are children of wrath and who are Satan's ally. You are either one who's been sealed in Christ against the attacks of Satan, and praise God that that's our position, or you bear the mark of the beast and you go the way of the world. The mark 666 is a picture simply of who you belong to, which side you are on. It's the number of man, sinful man, in all his rebellion against God. That's what it is. Jesus spoke of sheep and goats, wheats and tares. This is just another way of talking about that same reality. And then in chapter 14... A series of images, a series of images. In verses 1 to 5, the blessedness of the redeemed. You see, all of these little sections all conclude in the same way. That great day when Christ will return and will bring an end to this gospel age. I looked, a lamb standing on Zion, with him 144,000. Ah, we've seen that number before. It's just a number. It's symbolic. It's just talking about all of Christ's people. Because Christ won't lose a single one of them. They'll all be brought safely home. Every one of them. And there they are. They've got the Father's name written on their foreheads. You're not literally going to have something tattooed on your forehead. It's, that's who you belong to. You belong to the Father. They all belong to the world. But you don't. You belong here. Heaven's your home. God's your father. That's where you belong. Do, do, do you belong there? Is heaven your home? Is God your father? Is that you? Here in this verse, your heavenly father? I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters. That's chapter one, the voice of Christ. The voice of loud thunder. And so it goes on. We have these living creatures again who we've encountered previously before the throne. The only people who can sing the song that they sing are those who are Christ's. Unbelievers can't worship God. They have no heart to, they have no capacity to. Only the believers of Christ, only Christ's people worship him. And there they are worshipping. These are the ones, verse 4, who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Is that you? I'm just, I'm just following Christ. That's me, follower of Christ. Wherever it takes me, whatever it means, uh, whatever happens, whatever the consequences are, follower of Christ, that's what I'm going to do. In their mouth, no deceit. Sanctification, you see. Holiness of life. Marking out the Lord's people. They're without fault before the throne of God. Of course, here they are now in their, in their perfected state in heaven. The blessedness of the redeemed. Christians will face all manner of opposition and persecution. The beasts in all their guises, 
throughout all the ages will be very real, but so too is the eternal security of all who are Christ's, everyone who stands firm. Persecuted? Yep. Even to death? For some? Yes. But in heaven? Forever. Satan may destroy your body. He can't even begin to touch your eternal inheritance. He can't even touch it. You'll be safe with Christ. Verses 6 to 8, an angel goes out having the everlasting gospel. The gospel is still being proclaimed. The gospel is still to be preached. It's going to be tough. There'll be people against us. There'll be people laughing us down. There'll be people booing and jeering and pouring scorn. There will be, but the gospel continues to be proclaimed. Lost sinners still need to be brought into the fold. Even in times of difficulty, there is still a day of grace. Right up to the moment when Christ returns, it is a day and time of grace. And the gospel's to be preached, Christ is to be made known, and the elect are to be gathered in. Even though the beasts are raging all around, and they might at times seem to have triumphed, the gospel must be proclaimed. Are you, are you ready to do that? You're ready to stand shoulder to shoulder with the Lord's people, even as days get hard and proclaim Christ. But with this gospel preaching comes great warning in verses 8 to 11. Another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she's made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. A third angel followed. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Strong words. If you remain in the world, if you will not turn to Christ, if you remain, Jesus spoke of a broad road which leads to destruction and many are on it. That's the mark of the beast. That's them on that road heading there. And that destruction is coming soon, says the angel. It's coming soon. Here they are, those who reject God, those who just follow the world, doing that which seems right in their own eyes. And they're heading for destruction. And the angel declares the warning. This is where you're heading. And in contrast to them, in verses 12 and 13, we have the faithful saints who've persevered in the midst of it all and their eternal reward awaits them. Here's the patience of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Loving Christ, keeping his commandments. Blessed are the dead, verse 13, who die in the Lord from now on, that they may rest from their labours and their works follow them. <coughs> Don't despair, Christian friends, when it gets tough to be a Christian. Christian. 
it is Christ who opened this scroll. It is God's hands in, whose all these, in whom all these things are happening. All is under God's power and authority. All is according to what God has decreed and willed and purposed. All through the Bible, and I think you can see that these chapters are no exception, the Bible divides all of mankind into two camps. Those who are for Christ and those who are against him. That's what these chapters are talking about. Those who now are in fellowship with God through Christ, as we were reminded this morning in 1 John. And those who continue with the world under the thrall of the evil one. Now, most people, of course, who are not Christians, if you were to suggest to them that they are doing the devil's work and that they are under Satan, they would be offended in the extreme if you suggested that to them. But the suggestion that if Satan does exist, they are on his side... It wouldn't be taken very well. But Christian friends, that is the reality that the scriptures put before us here in these chapters and throughout the scriptures. And this section concludes just as the others do with the return of Christ, which bring, will bring all of these things to a close. And that begins at verse 14 and goes through to the end of chapter 14. The picture is of a great harvest, but actually there are two harvests that take place here. There are two harvests. I looked and behold, a white cloud. Oh, that's going to be Christ in Revelation. The white cloud sat on the cloud, one like the Son of Man. There he is, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. Another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap. For the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, what or who is Christ reaping? Christ is reaping his own harvest. Christ is gathering in his own people. The day will come and Christ will gather in all who are his. Are you Christ's? that on that day you will be gathered safely in. But there's another sickle. And this isn't held by, by Christ, it's held by an angel. And it's a sharp sickle. And in verse 18, halfway through, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Ripe for what? Ripe for judgment and condemnation. The angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth, threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And they are trampled. Trampled. It's one of a number of pictures in this book as to what happens to those who come under God's judgment. They're crushed by God. They're crushed. Christ reaps the harvest of those who are his. But then a second harvest by the angels. Likened to grapes, they are gathered 
They're placed in a wine press and they are crushed to their eternal destruction. There's a broad road. It's easy to walk. There's many on it. It leads to destruction. There's a narrow road. The way is difficult. The path is not easy. Few there are who walk on it. But it leads to life everlasting. Which path are you on?